Welcome to the Quipster Film Review Podcast. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast that covers films of the 1980s. And it is called Around the World in 80s Movies. You can find the link anywhere on my website. That's at Quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be looking at the latest film, from Martin Scorsese, and it's a film that's notable because it's currently playing on the Netflix streaming service. It is called The Irishman. It is an R-rated film. It did get some theatrical release before it was put into Netflix, but I'll get into that in a moment. It has pervasive language. It has strong violence in it. It runs, another notable thing, three hours and 29 minutes The main star is Robert De Niro with sizable supporting roles for Joe Pesci and Al Pacino, Harvey Keitel, Stephen Graham, Ray Romano, Anna Paquin, and Bobby Cannavale are in the film. Martin Scorsese, as I mentioned, is the director, and Stephen Zalian credited with the screenplay. Now, The Irishman is a tale that is spun from the vantage point of an older man. He's in a nursing home, and then we get to see a series of very extended confessional flashbacks as the main body of the film. Now, Robert De Niro is in that lead role of that old man, the World War II veteran meat delivery driver named Frank Sheeran, who back in the 1950s, he got involved as a hitman for the mob after he met and he provided his services to a well-known crime boss named Russell Buffalino. Buffalino's played by Joe Pesci in the film. Now, during his time working with Russell, Frank ends up meeting and then becoming a close confidant of the nation's most influential union boss, Jimmy Hoffa, and he's played by Al Pacino. Hoffa was known for using strong-arm tactics to bring the International Brotherhood of Teamsters Union to power, Organized crime had a significant influence in this era on the unions and in business and really up to the highest levels of government. So Frank finds himself on the rise. He plays bodyguard and a man of trust to Hoffa in his attempts to keep control of the most powerful union in the country. Now, if you know your history, you know kind of where this is going to go, although, you know, the mystery of Jimmy Hoffa kind of still exists today. This film attempts to answer some of those questions. Now, The Irishman is a notable film for many reasons. I've already given you a couple, but in Martin Scorsese's long and illustrious career, he struggled with the financing here for over a decade to get the movie made his way. The current studios make decisions primarily for what will make them a profit. Cinema for Art and these Oscar-bait prestige films, they end up getting packaged with a similar notion in mind. They want to have their budgets limited and to market them on the hope that perhaps it might take off and become lucrative for them. After languishing for several years, Martin Scorsese made a press to push forward with The Irishman after the release of Silence in 2016. However, the financially struggling Paramount Pictures, they paid for domestic distribution rights, which was good, but then they scoffed at the exploding costs of putting forward the filmmaker's vision as it was. They ended up dropping out when the leading financiers, a Mexican company called Fabrica de Cine, they canceled their $100 million bid to fund the money when the costs looked to skyrocket well above that amount. 
Scorsese ended up bucking then the traditional studio system in 2017 to make his film with the streaming service Netflix. Netflix, there's no need to worry about selling tickets because they really have a platform already for their viewers. You know, they have a different profit structure that relies on getting new subscribers to sign on to see their wealth of entertainment that they provide. And they want to keep old subscribers from canceling because they're satisfied with them continuing to get fresh content of quality. So they footed the $105 million for the exclusive rights to The Irishman. And in addition to that, the overall budget to make the film into one of the best films in the career of one of the best filmmakers of all time. That's quite a feather in Netflix's cap. Now, despite not being made by a major studio, Scorsese here received a hefty budget to make the film that he wanted, $159 million. That's the kind of money that studios really usually only afford the movies that Scorsese has recently criticized as so-called not cinema in his interviews of late. You know, he's a longtime cinephile, and he's also been a cinema purist. He long has been extolling the merits of the theater and crowd experience to take in movies. And that makes his marriage to Netflix particularly striking. They would split the difference by releasing The Irishman exclusively into theaters for 26 days before it ended up debuting on the streaming service. It's not a popular way to do it. Some major chains, some major theater chains, have been resistant to showcasing films that end up going quickly to digital, so a lot of them chose not to carry it, not only because short runs cut into theater profits, because the longer that films run in their theaters, the more of the percentage of the take that they get, but audiences are also hesitant to pay for an experience in the theater when they could see it on Netflix in just a short number of days, so... Scorsese has since softened on his initial criticisms of the studios and their quest for ever-profitable tentpole releases. Here he chooses to let his work speak for him, and it speaks volumes. The Irishman is his best argument in reminding cinephiles on what it's like to see a visionary filmmaker deliver an honest-to-goodness artistic and dramatic achievement in crafting challenging cinema instead of trying to service audiences by making strictly what we want to see, which is usually what the tempo releases do. Now, what is The Irishman? Well, it's an adaptation of this 2004 true crime book that was written by a former Delaware deputy attorney general. He ended up turning into an author. His name is Charles Brandt. He published the book upon which The Irishman is based, but it's called I Heard You Paint Houses in the book form. The book chronicles Frank Sheeran's alleged activities working for the Buffalino crime family, and it details his purported involvement in the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. This is a book that Robert De Niro read during his time when he was directing his film The Good Shepherd. That was back in 2006. It has some similar subject matter because it gives some history of the Bay of Pigs, which was kind of what The Good Shepherd was revolving around. De Niro connected with Charles Brandt's book. He ended up handing it to Martin Scorsese to read, and he thought it could be a possible project for them to work on together instead of the one that they had been planning, which was of the Don Winslow novel called The Winter of Frankie Machine. Now, Scorsese felt that if De Niro was finding it so passionate about this potential project in a way he hasn't been in some time, maybe it would be worth pouring all of their time and hearts into getting a film that they truly wanted to see made at this point in their career. So he ended up optioning the book immediately after reading it in 2007. And yet he still struggled to try to bring it to the screen, and that lasted for over a decade, because initially he was 
struggling with scheduling all of these actors that he wanted to appear in the film to be available. And then there was a darker reality as time went on. Studios were becoming more reticent to provide the funds necessary to bring such a sprawling epic gangster film to big screens in this era of massive releases that concentrate on superheroes and big budget action and whatnot. This was not going to be a lucrative film in most studios' minds. So The rest is, of course, history. We see it on Netflix now, and this film will end up marking the ninth feature film collaboration between the director and De Niro. They had not done a movie together, a full-fledged movie, since 1995's gangster opus called Casino. Now, also from Casino is Joe Pesci. He reportedly had been asked by Martin Scorsese dozens of times to come in to do the film before consenting, they say, over 50 times. Pesci really had not appeared in any movie other than doing voice work since 2010's Love Ranch, and that was his first significant role since 1998's Lethal Weapon 4. So for the past 20-plus years, he really hasn't done very much. Pesci said he was through with gangster movies in particular, but Scorsese insisted that this one would be worth his while to come back to. De Niro also played a role in getting Pesci to reconsider, and the actor finally consented when Netflix got involved because then the project changed from a pipe dream to something that actually had solid backing and interest. And De Niro was right. The film is different. And The Irishman's not just about the rise and fall of a criminal empire, as so many gangster films are. This is about more than that. It's about the corrosive nature of crime itself on those who participate in the life of killing and thuggery. This is a story of a man at the end of his life. He looks back at all he's done. And this is also made by people who are also looking back at the kinds of films they've done. And in that retrospection altogether, they find a defined poignancy in the tolls that are paid and traded away to live a wretched life. It's something that really can only be observed at the other end of life looking back. A retrospective gangster film, not commonly seen anymore. Although both knew each other and traversed the same cinematic circles for nearly five decades, The Irishman also marks the first collaboration between Martin Scorsese and Al Pacino. They discussed making films together for years, so they definitely were on the same page there. The most promising project that almost became a film was a biopic on a Jewish-Italian artist named Modigliani that dissipated due to studio reticence. You know, back in the day, back in 1980, United Artists released Heaven's Gate. That was a big-budget art film, and they ended up taking a bath on that. They really faced bankruptcy after that, and they ended up getting scooped up by MGM. And that made a lot of studios uh, shy away from putting forward the funds necessary to make lengthy and lavish art films like that. Pacino did appear uh, for three prior films with Robert De Niro, though. The first, of course, the all-time classic, but they didn't work together on the screen. That was The Godfather Part Two. The second time, it was much more notable. They made a great film uh, called Heat, Michael Mann's film, and they ended up sharing a key scene in that, which a lot of people found very riveting, because here were two titans of acting from the 1970s through the 1980s working together. And the third time, they actually worked together much more, but it was a lackluster misfire that very few fans really care about beyond the fact that there is a pairing of Pacino and De Niro, and that was called Righteous Kill. Now, after that last one, De Niro said he would like at least one more chance to work with Pacino, but it would have to be in a project that they both could be proud of making. And The Irishman, I think, is that movie that they should be pleased, very pleased, that they made. Now, all three of these actors give their best performances on film in decades, especially Robert De Niro. He acts like the film really means the world to him, and that's probably because it does. It is a passion project for him, even more so than it is for Scorsese. We witness De Niro's passion 
you know, you can see a scene that comes late in the movie. He, as Frank, struggles to spin a hopeful assurance to a concerned wife, agonizing about her husband who's been missing for a couple of days. Frank knows, of course, what happens to the husband, Jimmy Hoffa, but he has to maintain this facade of being a family friend and to be able to be consoling in that effort. And he's struggling to find the words. You know, this is evidence not only of this scene, but throughout this whole film of a masterful performance. I think this will allay naysayers who have long touted that the actor's best work is long behind him. Meanwhile, Pacino is electrifying, as you would expect, as Jimmy Hoffa. He's both menacing and comical. He has a mix of strength and actually vulnerability that really could only come from one of the great actors in cinema. It's really a well-rounded part. It's not just a stereotype. And although he's rarely acted in the last two decades, I think Joe Pesci really seems like he hasn't missed a beat here. Even longtime Scorsese collaborator Harvey Keitel gets a smaller appearance, although the role maybe is too small to garner him the kind of accolades that these other actors are getting. The Scorsese is still in peak form here with The Irishman. His use of steady cams to add intimacy and to comment on some of his other works and music to punctuate the time and the setting and the mood of the film. And there's a heap of emphasis on period details here. It's very immersive. He had already had a shorthand with these lead actors he'd worked with before. Uh, I guess Pacino was new to him, but he is also a seasoned actor that's used to improvisation and reactions. And he has played variations of tough guys like Hoffa throughout his career. So he didn't really need a lot of guidance. Scorsese here is discovering new facets by not portraying these top gangsters as unapproachable or glossed over with menace as so many other gangster films do. Instead, they're flawed, they're petty, they're concerned with very mundane issues on a human level. Russell doesn't want people to smoke in his car. And Jimmy Hoffa really can't get over someone meeting with him unless they're wearing a suit, especially if they're late. That really bothers him to no end. And I guess if you want to read into this, in all these ways, these behaviors are a measure of control and respect that drives them. They expect and set up arbitrary rules as guideposts on how others should behave around them. Whether they continue to have that respect is measured by whether other people are willing to indulge in not smoking in a car or being on time and wearing a suit. It really dogs these men to no end if they don't get that respect. So, very telling there. The film features over 250 characters to portray throughout several decades, heavily researched period wardrobe, sets, vehicles, guns, other props that are appropriate to each era. 6,000 extras were also utilized in the course of the shoot, and that shoot took place at over 100 different locations, real locations, not just done on a movie set. Now, does it need to be three and a half hours long? Now, if you just want to tell this as a story, I guess it didn't need to be. You could probably do it in two and a half, maybe even less than that. But if you removed even an hour of this film, you would likely lose many of the important, smaller, and more relevant reflections and those personal tidbits that feel so unique in this world that Scorsese and company are creating. Scorsese here deliberately brings in details like a statement that we should, in this continually moving era of perpetual distractions, take more than a moment to examine these subtle signs and to value the importance of the little things that end up becoming more significant and more valuable over time. And you could only do that with the time and effort and the patience to explore those things in film. And I think that he reaps great rewards for it in The Irishman. Now, to illustrate that, I would say there's a scene early on in the film. Frank is a soldier in World War II. He's being ordered, without actually being overtly ordered, to execute the enemy after making them dig their own graves. They continue to dig, despite knowing that death awaits them. 
as if doing a good job will save them in the end, but of course it doesn't. And that really doesn't necessarily push forward the main story, but without calling too much attention to it, Scorsese and screenwriter Steve Zalian here are commenting on just about every character that we meet going forward, so it ends up being a very important thematic piece. All of these characters are digging their own grave. There's no way out of it. All they can do and all they know how to do is to continue to dig, despite knowing that the only reward for their effort is a bullet to the head in the end. And in this and many other ways, The Irishman is a very immersive and detailed film, and it's made by people who put a great deal of time and effort to craft it. And seemingly without intention, The Irishman deals with contemporary politics in that it seems to suggest that the merger of government and industry and organized crime has been with us for a very long time. Now, there are notions here that the mob helped to get John F. Kennedy elected, at least in Illinois, and they expected some favors in return. They didn't get them. In fact, they were prosecuted for their actions by the new attorney general, the president's brother, Bobby Kennedy, that becomes a big part of uh, the middle part of this film. Hoffa was a particular target of Kennedy's interest in breaking up organized crime. And still, the mob is full of players who vow unquestionable loyalty. They're hard to break up. They operate with a code of speaking to their operatives and orders without actually saying them overtly, kind of like the military in that way. In some ways, many will reflect that the merger has continued into the politics of today. I mean, you read the headlines, it very much is almost like reading about an organized crime syndicate. Except now, uh, players in organized crime are global. The leaders of organized crime seem to have made their way to become heads of nations. And I'm not commenting specifically on the United States. I mean, you take a look at Russia and other places, you know, everybody's gangster. And in that way, it's kind of dispiriting to contemplate just how compromised and vulnerable our politics is and how it has likely been for a very long time. Now, while Frank Sheeran gets elevated to the national stage here as a power player operating behind the scenes, the politics of the home, his home, end up chipping away at his psyche. His home life seems to lose meaning to him in a tremendous way when he gets involved with these bigger things, to the point where he walks away from a marriage, even though he can't quite seem to fully let it go, and that becomes another underlying theme of this story. The particular spotlight here is his relationship with his daughter, Peggy, who we meet as a quiet young girl for the first half of this film, seemingly ordinary until she begins to put two and two together as to who her father is and what he actually does in life. Russell Buffalino notices that as well. He urges Frank to take care of things at home. But it's kind of a tricky issue that continues to dog Frank into Peggy's adulthood. Anna Paquin plays the adult Peggy through the second half of the film. But she doesn't really get any lines until one key scene. We only hear her speaking in that scene in which she asks her father why he hasn't called a specific person who's anguished. She asks, actually, initially, just why, which actually is interpreted as a more broad question as to why Frank does what he does at all. He spent his entire life the way he has. And for what? Why? In this way, Peggy is the silent but ever-present conscience that Frank has been burying his entire life. She's forcing him to confront the reality of his behavior in an environment full of people who only try to enable it. Now, The Irishman would get some press regarding its costly use of de-aging technology to portray these characters at various points in their lives. De Niro's character ranges anywhere from being in his 20s to his 80s. CG is not something generally associated with Martin Scorsese, but he ended up working with industrial light magic on the technology to see what they could do, and he was very satisfied with the results, and he decided to push forward with using de-aging computer-generated technology 
Scorsese felt it looked better than trying to use makeup to portray age, especially when you're going back decades. And it was kind of a safety net. They had the time and capability to perfect these looks if things weren't quite looking right, and they ended up looking better over time. Technology is always improving. Even if it wasn't completely perfect, Scorsese felt that if audiences were absorbed into the story, they would not notice the technique after being introduced to it. They would just get absorbed into these characters. And Scorsese, I think, ends up being right. Even with the initial hint of Uncanny Valley territory when you first see these characters as young men, the story still is so absorbing that we forget the artifice and we sense the underlying emotions of the storyline and what each aspect means to these characters. We see it on their faces, and we're very close up, without feeling hindered from their feelings behind those layers of digital effects. In addition to that, there's not all CG work. There's some other acting involved. A posture coach came in. He ended up helping the actors to stand and to move appropriately for their various ages. So it's really more of a performance art all around. Now, the director and the stars are now into their late 70s in age. And that resulted in a thematic through line in this film about making your mark, about earning your reputation, about securing a legacy. The on-screen quest for a legacy in the mob, though, is a little different than that of the art of filmmaking. A lot of critics have accused Scorsese over the years of glorifying the life of criminals but in The Irishman, I think he does something different. He makes a deliberate decision to undercut the glamour of the mobster with a freeze frame on their characters and a subtitle, letting us know that despite what we see in the moment, things are not going to end well for just about all of them. They might seem like high rollers, but there comes a permanent price for their actions that makes us continually question the worth of such a pursuit when we read over and over that most of them meet with grisly deaths in time. This is a devastating commentary on the emptiness of such a life from a director long fascinated with these underworld types and feels like he's really having the final say about these characters who themselves have a hard time closing the door to their chosen lives. And closing doors is another one of those motifs in this film. The film does have an extended epilogue that would almost certainly not exist if this were made by a traditional studio. Some viewers who are seeing the movie for the first time may actually question the last half hour of this film's need to exist, even though I think it really ends up perfectly encapsulating every critical theme of the entire picture. In these scenes, we spend more time with Frank as an older man, still alive, but closer to inevitable death, and he knows it. His life of crime only brought with it toward this part of his life, an estranged family and a group of fellow gangsters who've all perished around him. He's really feeling alone, but kind of in denial still. All Sharon has is a collection of memories that he continues to feel he can't talk about out loud because there's not much he can be proud of relating, even though he's telling us this story in this film. Frank confronts closing out this chapter of his life wishing he could have some permanence in this world that he's leaving behind, but he's struggling to find the way. He continues to dig despite his grave already waiting. We see him buy his coffin. We see him pick his final resting place. He's digging, but at the end of it, there's no getting out of it. He's going to perish in the end, just like all the others, even if it's not by a bullet to the head. The Irishman here serving as Scorsese's final Ozymandian monument to this life of fast money and these power players building empires that will earn no other monuments. Their amassed wealth, their prestige eventually erodes to nothing. And those who've chosen to partake in these activities end up being nobodies over time 
And that's a powerful indictment from a man who's spent his entire career analyzing and observing criminal types of a certain type in the United States over the course of his filmmaking career. So, wow, what a powerful film. Four stars, of course, an easy four stars is what I'm giving The Irishman. I I think it's one of Scorsese's greats, and that's saying a lot. He's made so many great films over the years. So such great performances, such potent themes, and just such a rich way of telling stories. It's a kind of movie that I wish they would make more of, and I think that's the best statement Scorsese actually makes with this film. Films are important, and they can reach you in a way that few other things can while you're sitting there for three and a half hours and taking all of this in. It's powerful, and really, unfortunately, it's it's not escapism. It's challenging, and I think that The Irishman definitely will stick with you for a long time once you've seen it all. And so that's why I give The Irishman four stars out of four. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this lengthy review on a very lengthy film. I do encourage you to reach out to me if you have your own thoughts on The Irishman. You can find my contact information at my website, email, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Any of those ways are adequate ways of getting in touch with me. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. And please enjoy your time, whether you end up going to the movies or catching a truly great masterwork streaming at home on Netflix. Netflix.